Hello, listeners of Bill Roden on Sports. I'm here to tell you about DraftKings.com, the official daily fantasy partner of Major League Baseball. Daily fantasy means no season-long commitments, instant cash, instant gratification. At DraftKings, it's like a brand new season every time you play. Just select two pitchers and eight position players, stay under the salary cap, and you could be on your way to an enormous payday. Last year, Peter from Colorado won a million bucks at DraftKings in one day just playing fantasy baseball. Hundreds of thousands of fantasy sports fans just like you have already cashed in at DraftKings. Hurry to DraftKings.com now and enter the promo code RODEN, R-H-O-D-E-N, to play for free. You can win part of the $300 million in prizes being awarded this season. Use the promo code RODEN, R-H-O-D-E-N, for free entry now at DraftKings.com. DraftKings.com, that's DraftKings.com. Welcome to Bill Roden on Sports. Taking you inside clubhouses, locker rooms, and boardrooms, legendary sports columnist Bill Roden gets inside the heads and beneath the veneer of the men and women who play and own the games we love. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another edition uh, of Bill Roden on Sports. Bill Roden Friends on Sports. They still haven't changed the logo on this. When you look at it, it's Bill Roden on Sports. But it's Bill Roden and Friends. Friend. All three of us are here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, this guy, man. The voice you heard was our, our special guest who was leaving. <laughs> that was the great Dick Parsons. But we're going to do a formal introduction. Uh, we've got the crew here. We've got... Um, uh, Jamal Murphy, our uh, sports attorney uh, person, and across from me is... Uh, we covered my name last week. Well, that was uh, Brian DeLendick. We know that last week. Huh? Brian DeLendick. Thrilled to be here, Bill. Yes, is our one guy. We're on. And, um, and uh, your assistant in the very back is... Jenny Cuddy. Jenny, Jenny Cuddy. Cuddy. You know, you get no airtime, Jen. This is about it for you. But Jenny Cuddy is here, so thank you very much for, for making for making this happen. And our uh, special guest, I'm really, it's really a, uh, this has been such a great run of shows. I've had people I've really admired for a long, long time and uh, get a chance to actually meet them and speak with them and have them speak back. Uh, our guest is uh, the wonderful Dick Parsons, Richard D. Parsons. And... Uh, Many of you know we. I, I, I want to read what you've done simply because a people need to know who they're listening to. So at the very end, so this is no Pharisee. He's done it. And uh, so um, uh, Dick Parson right now, right now is a senior uh, senior advisor at Pro, uh, Providence Equity Partners, which is a uh, private equity investment firm. Uh, he's the former chairman of the board of Citigroup Inc. And he was a chairman of the board and the CEO at Time Warner. And in 2005, and I was actually, I remember this, in 2005, you were elected or voted America's best CEO. Right, did you? In the entertainment space. Yeah, no, don't, don't mind me. Okay, I'm just Come saying, on, I'm yeah, just saying, yeah. I want to remain a friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so he's done, he's, he's, he's done, a lot of wonderful things. He's also now. This is very interesting. My, he's also the. Uh, uh, you're a director at Estee Lauder. Mm-hmm. But by the way, my daughter works at Clinique, so we want to. There you go. We want to. Little uh, shout out. Have yeah this conversation a little later. I said, right, it was Raisa. We're going. Well, there's another conversation. Okay. But uh, anyway, uh, and he's uh, now. This is very interesting. You're also a director uh, at Lazard. Uh, Lazard Frere. Frere, Frere, and for for our for our for my sports base, what they're interested, you're also a director at Meta Square Garden Inc. Right now, that's when people say, "Okay, that's happening." Now, what's what's happening? I mean, what you know, what how is that going re- to to this misery? Oh, oh, don't start with me. Okay. Don't start with me. I, this, it's going to get better. You think so? It has to. Did you have anything to do with with them drafting? Uh, anyway, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> welcome to the show. But did you have this? Is not, this is not on the script. But did you have? No, I don't get down in the drafting. Huh? We all try and help uh, where we can. But that was Phil's play. It, oh, 
<laughs> under that bus. <laughs> under that bus. All I was, but we, we, this is not a, 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 a segment about the. But is there, is there hope? Well, it's the New York Knicks. There has to be hope, but they have to rebuild. They've been doing it. Dick, they've been uh, they've been doing it forever, Dick. It. You know, look how long it took them to rebuild the Rangers. But once they got there, you know, Rangers are perennially in the playoffs. Actually, moving to the final. The Knicks will be back. Okay. You heard it here you first. Heard it here first. <laughs> New York Knicks. And, and Porzingis, you know, he looks good. I've been watching the summer league games. Uh, Phil might have found a gem. Okay. Defense. All right. All right. Anyway, but the interesting thing is that um, uh, let, let, let me go on. I, I, relative to what we're about to do, I, I said that uh, you're director at Mass Garden. Uh, you're also chairman emeritus at the Partnership for the City of New York. Uh, you're the chairman of the Apollo Theater Foundation and of the Jazz Foundation of America. We both share that in common. I'm a jazz guy, jazz guy. Uh, and he also serves on the board of Teach for America, which is near and dear to my heart, and the Rockefeller Foundation and the Commission of Presidential Debates. And I'm reading all this, Dick. I'm like, man, where you have to end? And we're not finished. We're not finished. You also, you and your wife, Laura, you're also you you own and you operate. You're not just the owner. You you op, you operate. We uh, can pronounce this too. A vineyard. You, you uh, pronounce, but we want to get the name of it. This is two Palazzone. Il Palazzone. Il Palazzone. Il Palazzone. Brian. Brian pronounces. Il Palazzone. Il Palazzone. This a boutique winery is located in Montesino. Montalcino? Montalcino. 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 I, I should have had you read all this. That's all right. But, but what's interesting about this, I mean, seriously, is that <clears throat> you've accomplished so much stuff. And I guess I'm reading all this, and I'm thinking, how do, you have, how do you have time to do all this? I mean, all the stuff that you've done, and, and you're, 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 you're not even out your 60s. I mean, you're, you're a young guy, relatively. Oh, you stole my, I was going to say, I'm old. Yeah, no. Yeah, well, I, you're old, you can do a lot of things. Well, we're all we're all kind of the same, but, but but seriously, man, welcome, uh, welcome to the show. It's really great sitting across from you. But seriously, how do you? And, and by the way, he brought, Dick brought a wine. Now, what is this wine we're about to toast and drink? This is from your. This is from our. What, what is what are, what are we about it's to drink? It's a 2010 Brunello. 2010 was a fabulous vintage for Brunello, maybe the best we've had in many many years. And this is a Brunello made in. Montalcino in Italy, where all the good Brunello comes from, and so we're offering it up for your uh, well, taste and comment. Brian will tell you. Well, about it. Brian's well, the wine guy. Brian's the wine. He'll tell you. So here's here's cheers. Thanks. For welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If if my words <laughs> if my words start getting slurred, that's why we're coming for you. By the middle of the thing. That's why well, you have friends. Hmm. And also, I forgot. The owner of my favorite restaurant in the world, uh, uh, the, C um, uh, the Cecil, in Harlem, USA, my Harlem, USA, I go there all the time, uh, the Cecil, and next door, some of the greatest uh, music in the world in Minton's, uh, I just told you I went there uh, just last week with um, Lionel Hollins, who's the head coach of mm -hmm. the uh, of the uh, the Nets, loved it, loved the music, so it's a lot of, a lot of great stuff. What, what let, let, I want to start with um, what a lot of people know you for is of all of all the stuff a lot of people really first knew you. I mean, sports people, basketball people, first knew you this time last year, May this time last mm -hmm. year, when you became the uh, sort of the executor, the protector of the L.A. Clippers. Uh, this was in the middle of everybody knows about the, the events leading up to the Sterling and all that stuff and. And basically, because you've had such a reputation as being a stabilizer, whether it's City Corp, whether it's Time Warner, you were known as the person who comes in and helps put the fire out, stabilizes things. So Adam Silver, I guess, figured, let's see if you can put this fire out. <laughs> so he said, <laughs> how, how your, uh, do, you, do you have fireproof drawers on? So he called you. And I want, how did that come about? Uh, did, it, did you get a call, a text, or did you meet him over drinks? How did that happen? No, no, I, I got a call because um, a lot of people didn't, know this because everybody said to me basketball what do you know about basketball mm -hmm. but when I was with Time Warner I was running Time Warner we owned the Hawks right. the Atlanta Hawks and so you got a lot of exposure mm -hmm. to the 
ins and outs of owning a basketball team. Secondly, through TNT, which uh, was also one time one of subsidiaries in Turner, uh, we had a long and deep relationship with the NBA. So I knew Adam okay. in that context, and when Adam decided that it was time to reach out and try and get some help, uh, I guess I was on his short list, and he called me. Hmm. Even before he called you, you had been following the events of Sterling, well, right? You could not, right. not follow those right. events. That was a huge story. Yeah. At any time in there, before he even called you, had you thought of, of perhaps... I don't either stepping in or calling somebody or what. No. You know, what, were, what, were, what were your thoughts no. pre Adams call to Adams call. What were you thinking? You know, I had retired, right? I was doing something different. I'd left Time Warner, that world. I was in finance, um, so it was a complete surprise. But he, you know, he's a he's a friend, and he was trying to do the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. He was trying to do the right thing. He could use some help. Mm-hmm. So so walk us through that. I mean, you, you clearly you 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 talked to your wife and you you, know, you right. said okay. Which we all know is the first thing you've got to do. First and last. <laughs> or it'll be the last. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but so, so w- what was, were there any trepidations? I mean, you know. Wasn't so much trepidation. Um, but I did, when he called, I said, look, first thing I do is talk to my wife, and then I'll come in and chat with you because I'd like to know what, what, what it is you have in mind. And mm-hmm. what he wanted was, you put it actually well, sort of conservative. So I was quasi owner and quasi. Mm-hmm president of the club mm. because both Donald Sterling and his president got his president got, Donald Sterling got put on lifetime leave and his president got put on permanently mm. um, so I went to talk to Adam about well by what right are you doing this because as a former lawyer you like to <laughs> know whether you have real authority or not and you know his view was it was implicit in his role as commissioner and as, as protector and guardian of the league and he just needed somebody to step in and uh, and hold the coats so to speak and settle down the team while he and the NBA dealt with and the, and the ownership dealt with Mr. Sterling. And how did you feel just at a, at a personal level you know just as a as a just as a, an African-American as a human being as a citizen before you even went there how did you feel just about what he did in terms of uh, offending sensibilities, if you think that's what he did. Well, it was, you know, I can say it now because it's really history, but it, it, it was just nutty, right? It was nutty, and what surprised me was how global that story became. I mean, you not only couldn't travel inside the United States, you couldn't travel outside the United States, and people were talking about it because it, it cast not just him and his ownership and the NBA, but America, mm. you know, it ignited something that that foreigners were talking about. Everybody was talking about. <laughs> right. I didn't realize the depth of it until I had got put my foot in it. Mm. But uh, you know, it, it was it was definitely something that that needed to be dealt with strongly and quickly. But he had been. I mean, did you know Sterling before? I did not know Sterling before. I didn't even know him by reputation. But I knew a lot of people in L.A. And when I got out there, you know, I tried to check out who this guy is, right? Because right. he's on the other side. He had that reputation for years. I mean, everybody who I knew and who I talked to about Sterling said, no, 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 this is not a good guy. you got to yeah. go. So we're glad to see you and get about what you got to do. Which which was an interesting thing about what Adam and, and, and uh, David Stern kind of had to answer because this wasn't the first time. I mean, in other words, everybody knew this guy was was out to, I mean, there were lawsuits, there was discrimination suits, and the question became, so, well, wait a minute, you guys, he was a member of your club for like 30-something years. Well, you know, though, that's true, but when you, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and people right. say, well, how come you didn't get him right. earlier? Um, I, I frankly think that you needed something that was as galvanizing as this, and I give, I think the hero of the piece, I think there are three, actually, mm-hmm. But the main hero of the piece was Adam. He just, when this when this event happened, he seized on it and he said, all right, that's it, time mm-hmm. out, time, game over, you're out. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, uh, the other two heroes, one was Shelley Sterling. Really? Yeah, Shelley. Shelley was, Shelley um, recognized two things. Recognized there was no coming back from this. And <laughs> she was a, a half owner of everything because they have community property out there. 
And I also think she recognized that, that, that Donald was not even the Donald of old. Donald was slipping into mm. some form of incapacitation, and she moved on. And that's a tough thing for a wife to do. And then Steve Ballmer, who showed up one day with a wheelbarrow full <laughs> of money and said, mm. can, anybody, <laughs> can anybody get in this game? <laughs> right. <laughs> had, you ever, had you ever thought uh, before this time, had you ever thought of ownership? I mean, ownership of, of a professional. Well, remember, in my role as CEO of Time Warner, I was an owner. Right. So, well, uh, yeah. So I, I understand the economics of owning a basketball team. It's it's a um, it's not a bad financial deal, but you have to you have to be a long term investor. Mm -hmm. um, it basically costs you money during the, the period of time of active ownership, and you get it all back when you sell. So if that's your profile as an investor, and you have that kind of both resources and patience, makes sense. Yeah, yeah because you know you remember it was so if, funny. If, if, if like us though, you're a working man. Right. Mm. You're working man. Mm. <laughs> but you know it's so funny that that time everybody was lying around the block. The Oprah. Oh, everybody. You know, every week. Everybody he, I, was I in put the my game. name. In, I'll, I'll I'll buy it. You know, but everybody was coming. They want to buy the team. But what what what's the thing in the bill? Many a call. Well. The best quote that I heard was from <clears throat> Elaine Wynn, Steve Wynn's mm. uh, former wife, who's a very wealthy woman. When Mr. Bomber showed up, she told the people in her group, she said, well, you know, y'all, they're billionaires, but then they're billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think we ought to get out the road. <laughs> he was going to have that team, and there was, there, mm. was, there was no one who could step in front of it. Mm. That's a great. They're billionaires and they're billionaires. I'm, I'm gonna, I want to ask you about that too because again, again, there's so much stuff to ask you. But wealth is very important. But let, I want to let's not get. I, I want to stay in this this Clippers thing because, again, you were known for, whether it's going to City Corp, you were known for putting out fires. Uh, same thing, stabilizing uh, AOL, I mean, uh, Time Warner, then the merger and stabilizing that. But how was this different? I, I, was, I tell people sometimes that. When you step inside the sports world, it's sometimes yeah. unlike anything you've ever seen. So how was, how different was, was this from anything you had done to that point? In terms of visibility, um, because it was almost uh, asynchronous, if you will. Mm -hmm. The Clippers is it's an organization of 125 people. It's a little tiny business, right? <laughs> uh, whereas you know, Time Warner, 95,000 people. Citigroup was 275,000 people around the world. This was a, you know, you could you could literally touch everybody in the conference room during the day. <laughs> but but the L.A. Times, just to give an example, every day for two months mm. they had two full pages mm. on this story. I, I traveled overseas a couple of times. People would recognize you, you know. In the airports in Italy or in France, um, it was just a huge, huge story. It you know punches way above its weight in terms of mm. of media coverage and popular interest. So you end up being higher above the radar than you anticipated. Oh, so so that caught you by surprise? A little bit. Mm. On the other hand, uh, in those previous incarnations, much of the civilized world was lined up against you. Everybody wanted to kill Time Warner after the merger. Right, right. Everybody wanted to kill City after, you know, the collapse, financial collapse, as if we caused it. Uh, you had the government against you, you had shareholders against you, you had people in the street against you. Here, everybody's on your side. Here, the, <laughs> the, the enemy was Mr. Sterling. Right. Period. Full stop. Mm. So that that's a different dynamic also. And you also had a very interesting workforce. Unlike the workforces at these previous institutions, you had a very interesting workforce. You had a group of young, yeah. for the most part, African American young men who were wealthy. Well, I guess there's wealth and there's wealth, but all things, you know. You're talking about the team, yeah. But also the the organization itself, mm -hmm. young, uh, diverse, a lot of a lot of Latinos as well as as African Americans, mm -hmm. and you know, kind of with it, young white folk. And all they really needed was for somebody to come and say, "Okay, look, you guys go back to work, right? Mm -hmm. You got, I got, I got him, and the media, and and all these external forces. I'll deal with that. You do your job. We're done." Mm -hmm. So, 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 what did you see your first? I mean, as soon as you got in, you saw the brouhaha. You saw the. What was your first challenge? I mean, what was what 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 was the the biggest fire that you you, you had to put out? It was all over day one. Day really? one, yeah. 
I went, I met with all, literally, I said, you can get them all in the room. Mm. I met with all the employees. I talked to everybody <laughs> one-on-one. And basically, um, I think they came away persuaded that, that the model worked. That, okay, we're going to let him deal with Mr. Sterling mm. and with all this stuff going on outside. And he said for us to go back to work and do our job. You know, I told him a story about, did you ever see The Wizard of Oz? Mm. <laughs> after, after they threw the bucket of water on the witch, I said, I can't call the day, but this guy's melting down. <laughs> he don't come back from this. Right. So Does you just go do your job. I'll handle that piece of it, and we'll get through this. Does that include the players? Uh, were you hands-on with the players also? I was hands-on with some of them because, remember, this was summertime. They were all gone. The season had just ended. But with, uh, with uh, CP in particular, with Cliff, a lot with Doc. And with Cliff and a few of the others, but you know, Cliff, Cliff was is the captain of that team and the leader, so we had an awful lot of conversation with him. J.J. Reddick was around for a little bit, uh, DeAndre a little bit. Hmm. How, how? I guess when I was talking about the workforce, though, you know, I, I've sort of been a big person uh, 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 in terms of the powers of, of, of players. I mean, that's sort of my big thing: is power and how much power do you really have? What did you think about the reaction of? Of players, um, I've been somewhat harsh in my criticism of, you know, there's just because you have money doesn't necessarily mean you have power. Mm-hmm. In terms of players, I mean, you know, if you think that you got money, how much do you think the guy who's paying you has, you know. Also, you have to understand money to understand power, to how to mm-hmm. use it for power. And remember, these are young young men mm-hmm. who who don't come from a background and a heritage of having money, so. They know you can spend it. They don't necessarily know how you can use it mm-hmm. uh, as a leverage point. Mm-hmm. I think Chris did. You know, Chris is actually not that young. He's been around. He's been through some wars himself, and uh, he got the joke. And I, I do think that <laughs> the team came together and used their power in an effective way in, in the sense that, okay, something's got to change here. You know, we can't play under these circumstances for this guy. And, you know, we're going to practice, we're going to do our thing, but somebody needs to fix this before the season mm-hmm. and, you, and, you, and you have LeBron. I mean, not just, it, wasn't, well, Le- it, it yeah. wasn't just, it just wasn't the Clippers. It was a lot of people no. who began LeBron, to LeBron, LeBron played big on the periphery of this. And LeBron is, frankly, a bit more sophisticated about his role, his position, his money, uh, and his ability to influence. Mm-hmm. So that even someone who, who could sort of swallow hard, because, you know, the team was... Team knows this guy, right? Uh, and say, well, somehow we'll soldier through. They didn't want to be in a position where you had the LeBrons of the world on the outside saying, "Well, we ain't playing y'all, <laughs> right?" Because uh, we aren't, we aren't, we aren't playing that game. Right, and I find, you know, I, I think I found that very, I found that fascinating because the whole thing of leverage, and, and, and you, you made a really a great point about it's one thing to have money, but if you don't understand how to use money as leverage, and to me, that's probably has been the story of. Black athletes, whether in the NFL mm-hmm. or the NBA, is like paying, getting paid a lot of money, but not knowing really how to use that as leverage to get X, Y, and Z. And maybe the issue is well, we until until um, Sterling, there was never really a target. I mean, he he gal, yeah. you know, like you said, he galvanized. There was never any. Yeah. Oh, this is how we can do it. No, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry, I cut you between drinks. There, that's but. right. That's <laughs> more where this came from. Uh, actually, the person who I was closest to in NBA before all this was David Stern, and mm-hmm. he and I talked a lot about. He would try to get me to come and talk to uh, the athletes, not even about that next step, which is what you're talking about. How do you leverage it? Just how do you hang on to it? How do you right. manage it? Because most of these young men do not come from a, a background or environment mm-hmm. where they learn that along the way. Right. It's new to them and money, you know, money. Money's intoxicating. First oh, time you get first time you, you know your your pockets get aligned, somehow it just bleeds away. Mm, tell me about it. Uh, I, I mean that, I was going to ask you this later on but that I, I'm I'm fascinated by that. I mean you grew up in Bed-Stuy. Yeah. Right? And, and I don't think I mean you your parents were just like regular yeah. parents they weren't, you know. How did how did you make how did you even begin to make that transition from being this, you know, ten to, to to suddenly you begin thinking about wealth and all that? Because clearly you got to learn this stuff. You do, and it didn't happen in, in my case until after, um, after I got out of law school, mm-hmm. and I went to work for a man named Nelson Rockefeller, 
and uh, and I was ultimately became his lawyer, and I was his lawyer for ten years. And so you get you know you you have a ringside seat mm-hmm. to how money is used and how it can be used. But the real thing for me was when I started practicing law privately mm-hmm. uh, as an associate in a firm here called Patterson, Belknap, Webb and Tyler, I sat in the room with a kid named Davey Moran. Now that won't make, make any difference at all. Dave's still around. His father was a guy named Tugboat Moran. Okay. He owned all the tugboats in New York Harbor and ran. You remember those Moran yeah. tugboats when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. And I would come in and get the paper and I'd turn the sports page. <laughs> and Davey would come in, he'd get the Wall Street Journal and start reading the business things. And I said, I talked to him about, I said, where did you learn this stuff? He said, well, I grew up with it. You know, my mm-hmm. father would talk about it. So I made him a deal. I said, I'll teach you about my side of the street. You teach me about your side of the street. And we spent a couple of years together, and he taught me about you know, sort of corporate finance and, mm. and, and the world of money at, at a working level, not just at an observing level. Mm-hmm. And that, that was, for me, a most valuable education. Uh, yeah, because I was, I was wondering, and just tell a brief because I have, you're talking about your first paycheck. I remember I got my first book advance. And it's the first thing I used to laugh at my high school coach. He said, he said, what did he say? I said, I, well, he used to tell us, you know, Mr. Howard grew up, you know, I grew up in Chicago, south side of Chicago. And he said, I wore a T-shirt and a tie to my graduation. First time I saw a $20 bill was when I was in the Navy. You know, I mean, that, that whole thing. And, and, but I remember I got my first advance. And it was like, wow, I never, it was almost like I blanked out. You spent and, it, and, and then and, you spent it. And then when I woke up, I said, where is it? Yeah. You know, so so I may criticize guys about a lot of things. I will not criticize guys about the money because if you don't, it's like fire. If you don't understand it, it can consume you. Let me tell you, I took one student loan in my life. Um, when I was going, if I had stayed here in New York State, I could have gotten a higher education assistant corporation scholarship and going mm-hmm. to any school, but I wanted to go away. So I went to the University of Hawaii. And I worked two jobs that summer, and I got an $1,850 loan from the <laughs> state. So I had enough money in my pocket when I went out there to cover me for the year. But this is the first time, you know, I'm out from under the folks. I got six, $7,000 cash money in my pocket. I was broke by October. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get a job and everything, man. It was just pitiful. I had starved. I went down at this size, 6'4". I went down to 156 pounds. <laughs> because I, it just, like you, I blanked out somehow. Yeah. Somebody got the money. Uh, but, but I guess That was it. Once I did that, I said, okay, I right. got this. I got this. A, I'm not borrowing money anymore just to drink mm-hmm. it up and carry right. it out with women. Right. And B, you gotta, you have to be thoughtful about it. But that first time, so so I mean, so you you, you put that time a million. If you're talking about, you know, I was just at the uh, the um, in Brooklyn, the uh, where the Nets play basketball, Barclays, oh, Barclays Center, and they had the draft. And I and and but this time, I mean, I've been doing this. I've been at the Times for what like thirty since for thirty three years now. So I've been seeing these drafts over and over again, and it's just amazing to see the families because. And, and it's sad, but it's also poignant that for a lot of these fans, this is sort of like, like the lottery day. And it's one guy. It who, is the lottery day. It, it, yeah, 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 precisely. And 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 I'm wondering how much of that did you get a chance to see when you were at, at the Clippers? I mean, you you were there for a few months, but how much did you really get to check out in terms of the culture of it? Oh, and, oh, but I'd seen that long before. Remember, I started out. You didn't cover it, but I started out as a lawyer, mm-hmm. and um, and because I had this very high net worth uh, uh, clientele. You know, I re- mm-hmm. represent a lot of America's, even then, billionaires. We, my firm, my partners and I decided, well, this would be a good thing to roll out um, with these athletes. Like, we, we represented Kareem and a few mm-hmm. of the big mm-hmm. athletes. And, you know, when Kareem, well, I, I'm not going to put anybody's business in the street, but, but, but all of those guys uh-huh. went through this phenomenon of introduction to immediate and awesome wealth and no background of preparation for managing it mm. and and mm. and surrounded by people who really didn't have their best interests at heart. And it's not that much different now. It's a little better, but not that much different. I don't know what your view is. You no, out there. No, I agree. I think uh, a lot needs to be done. Do you feel in you know, talking about that, do you feel that the league is doing enough uh, to maybe surround them with more the answer is no, but I think that it's now in focus, and they're starting to do more. Um, they're starting to do more. They're starting to try and put program in place 
that uh, that can bring these folks together with their peers. That's the key. You can't isolate one-on-one. Bring them together with their peers and put legitimate and 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 trusted advisors at their disposal. That's part of what they need. Because, as I said, money is intoxicating. And even now, I mean, the latest studies that have come out, you know, you look five years after most of these guys get out of the league, they broke. Yeah. You know, 35% of them are going into and declaring bankruptcy. Mm. That's a shame. I, I want to, you mentioned, again, there's so much to talk about. We're going to have to do part one and part two about this. But, you, you know, you, you mentioned, mentioned uh, meeting Nelson Rockefeller mm-hmm. and all that. And I, and I guess to an extent that, that, that was some major change. In your life. And I was thinking about that. I'm going up, I'm, I'm coming up the subway in like Rockefeller Center. And I'm thinking, you know, what's it like? I mean, you know, like Arthur Ashe is one of my men, uh, mentors and all that. And it's one thing for people to say these names. And it's another thing of having had dinner with this person, had, had, th- what, what, what was that like? Uh, how transformative was that in your life in terms of meeting him and then all the financially and politically? Yeah. Well, you know, they talk about inflection points. For me, that was the real inflection point. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be clever, but you need to be more than clever and you need to catch certain breaks. And I, I got recruited by that group, the Rockefeller group, when I got out of law school. And he was my first mentor and the most significant mentor. And it was, uh, you know, it was it was a diamond in the rough operation. I'll never forget <laughs> the first time we had dinner at his house, my wife and I, and he and Happy Rockefeller. And it was just the four of us, you know, and we were sitting around. And they put like this bowl, they had dinner, and they put this bowl that had a little floating leaf in it. it looked like clear broth, right? Now, my wife is smart enough not to make a move. To <laughs> but not me. I grabbed the soup spoon. I went for it. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. Then he dipped his fingers in that. Who, who knew what a finger bowl was? I mean, give me a break. So I, he was like, he just shook his head. and said, we got to work on this boy. Um, but as I said, it was an introduction to a, a different world. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, if you keep your mouth shut and your eyes open, you can learn a lot just about how the other half lives. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you have to go over but you're exposed to it, you, and you can take the best of that, and you're familiar with it when you see it, and and can manage through it uh, in a way that, that folks who don't have any exposure to that don't. You know, they say success in life is 10% what you know, 10% who you know, and 80% luck. <laughs> he filled in the who you know piece for me, and, that, and that's significant. That's mm. that's significant. I mean, yeah. who you who you know, who you know, who you know is is. You know, but so you you, you mean it, but. Let's go back before you even met him, because you you go to, you get from Brooklyn to Hawaii, which is a is a big that's a big leap. What what where did you go? The high school? I, I well, know, so. yeah, no, we left Brooklyn when I was, you know, young man. I went to Queens, right? Went to, so that's I, right. I you to, really went out to the Hicks. Yeah, yeah, the Hicks, <laughs> the sticks at those times. I call it the hinterland. Yeah, <laughs> it was in those days. And then uh, so I went to, you know, I'm a product of New York City public schools, and I just. Um, Wanderlust, you know, you mm-hmm. just wanted to try someplace new and different. Plus, when I was in high school, I sat, I had a lab bench partner who was from Hawaii, a young lady, and I said, Okay. I got to check this out. <laughs> you, there are more of you there? I got to check this out. <laughs> so, uh, off we went. How and you, you, skipped, you skipped a couple grades, right? Yeah. Because you, 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 you enrolled at Hawaii at 16? Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you, you 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 skipped once when you were in grammar school. Then once you in grammar school again, and right? once in high school. Yeah. All right. So you were a baby basically going to. How did your parents let you go to Hawaii? Well, my mother would not have, but my father was. You know, my father was you know, from the south, and he was like Isabel. That was my mother's name. She said, "Let the boy go to Hawaii." I mean, you could have gone to like Las Vegas. Uh, you know, Montana. <laughs> Hawaii sounds better. Yeah, right. Well, it, particularly that you didn't see this lab bench <laughs> partner. Yeah, I know, no, no, I know what you're talking about. Um, now, did you did you didn't play ball in in high school? Did you? No, no so not you, in not 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 on the school team. I I played, for, you know, you know how the church leagues were, and then because I was younger, right, right. Uh, and then I played uh, a year when I was in Hawaii. I, I walked on the. In those days, they still had freshman teams. They didn't. Right. I played for the freshman squad. Do you think that changed your life? Because you, you, since you only played the freshman squad, and I, as the older I get, and the more I see this whole thing of, you know, black men and sport, particularly NBA, I'm really beginning to rethink: Is this really good for us? I mean, 
you, you know what I'm saying? I, I mean, it's one level it kind of is, but for you, for example, it almost saved your life. The fact that you didn't go any deeper into it and that you kind of got on with your life. Uh, well, I, I didn't go any deeper into it because I didn't have the skill. I thought, <laughs> I <laughs> thought that, you know, uh, see, I was a couple of years I wouldn't skip my boy for this reason. You know, you, you don't want to get too far ahead of yourself. Mm. Uh, I thought that I had real talent coming from New York. You know, that's where all the ball players were. Right. We had this team of you know all stars from Texas and Florida. <laughs> right. and, and I realized that, oops, <laughs> this might not be the path. It was a lot of fun, and it was my family mm. in that first year. So it was it was it was important in that way. I, I think the thing that's dangerous, and we have to do something about it is when these kids get identified at 9, oh, 10, man, 12 years old and then they get it's it's sort of a reverse tracking they get put on this track where quote you are special oh, because you can shoot a basketball you can catch a football you can hit a baseball uh, and they begin to think somehow the rules don't apply to them and that and that this is going this is life mm. and then they're 26 right. years old they're out and the alternative is pumping gas like what was the, kid, this, the brother who caught all these passes for Seattle in the Super Bowl you know, as soon as he was working in some sports store. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> it was a, Whatever his name was. Was it uh, Baldwin? Doug Baldwin? No. Uh, it, it was a kid who made the miraculous catch. Yeah. And and, uh, and then a few others behind that. He, and right. he he would have been MVP, I think, if they'd won that game. Oh, no. But, but they, they went. Yeah, I know. That was, oh, tough. It was a nightmare. God, <laughs> I, I don't even. I'm sorry you missed that. Every, they, every time somebody brings that up, I'm sick. Oh, I didn't know. I'm that. sick. All he had to do. Uh, 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 all right, yeah, let's, let's anyway, focus on this, right? You know, they, were, they had to go. He had played for somebody, but right. when he fell off right. the grid, he was working in a sports store. I mean, right. so that that's what happens to these kids who get put on this track and aren't prepared for anything else. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and again, you know, I guess we're, we're, this is gonna, we're going to have to do two, two sessions because there's, there, there, there's, there's so much to talk about. But I just want to get this one last thing about money, then I want to talk about uh, the restaurant. I want to talk about the, the winery, which is... I know, Brian. We'll get to your part of the show. I'm so, waiting patiently, Bill. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah sip up, <laughs> sip up, Brian. It's, just, <laughs> um, it's delicious. But, uh, so I went to pass, and it, I, I want to get this thing about money because it's and, and, and look at the things you've accomplished, and I think part of this is like looking at big things and, and mm -hmm. knowing how to make big things happen. So I'm at, at Pasadena this last January at the uh, Oregon Florida State game. So I get out there early. You know, Pasadena is really beautiful, and they've mm -hmm. got these gorgeous houses. That are on the mountains. So for some reason, I'm one of those guys. I for, I didn't really start focusing on money till my daughter got accepted at Wellesley. Then all of a sudden, I'm like thinking money. But to then, I'm like, you know, I don't care. You know, I'm, I'm about to. So anyway, I'm looking at these houses. One house bigger than the other at the top of the mountains. This one particular house. I'm like looking at it. I'm like, wow. And I wonder who lives there. And I wonder is is is. is is this this guy's dream house? I mean, did he? And then I'm thinking, what happens if I would have met somebody who lived in that house when I was like 15? And what choices? And I and I and I was in that house. And I said, you know what? This is what I want to have by the time I'm 30. And what choices would I have then made at the age of 15 that would have led me to that? Would they have been moral choices? Would they have been ethical choices? Or like you were saying. There are probably people you met earlier, like the Rockefeller. They were making choices like this probably when they were 10 years old. So I guess it's not so much a question, but it's an observation. I wonder what you think about that idea of just being exposed to this kind of... Well, I, I think that's the key word, exposure. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and recognition that, that nothing comes from nothing. If you want something, you have, to, you have to be prepared to sacrifice for it. You have to be prepared to work for it. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that sticks in my mind in this respect that you were talking. When I was younger and uh, and still articulate and attractive, <laughs> I was still constantly... Still still attractive. Yeah. Well, there you 30, go. 34, 35-year-old yeah. guy. Um, I was several times entreated to sort of go into public life politics. So I went to my mentor, Nelson Rockefeller, and I said, well, what do you think? And he said, well, it's interesting. He said, you, you, you know, obviously... Public service is the highest calling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, I'd be happy to help, and you know, particularly financially and so on and so forth. But my advice to you is don't need the job. Mm. So I looked at him and he said, he said, yeah, make your money ahead of time so that you can do the job and do the job the way you mm. feel it ought to be done 
and not in the way that you're beholden because you need the job. And that was not just a good piece of advice for policy. It was a good piece of advice as far as I was concerned for the rest of my life. You know, I, I, I never wanted to be beholden mm. to, to anything where, where somebody can make you do something or you, you persuade yourself you have to do something mm. that's against your will, against your nature, but you can't afford mm. to let this opportunity, to lose this job or something like that. So that meant, what does it mean? It means discipline and saving. Mm. It means putting yourself in a position where if you get into that slot, you can say, you know what? This ain't for me. I'm rolling. I'll find something else out mm. of here. I'll be all right. I don't need you, mm. and I don't need your job. That's so liberating. It is. It's, it's, it's totally so liberating. liberating. But how do you, I, as I'm hearing you thinking that, I can't tell you exactly everything I'm thinking, but, <laughs> but I'm hearing you say that, and I think, damn, if I would only would have known that when I was like, 23 or 22, you're right. I did not have the discipline, you know, when I, my first, you know, so how do you get the discipline? And was, again, is it this Nelson Rockefeller thing here when you, when you began to, because you're already, by that time, you're already a lawyer, right? You've yeah. already got your yeah. law degree. But is that when you, and I guess that's when that's that, when you like, start on the road. You right. don't get there right away. But, but, you know, people ask me, like, this restaurants. Well, what the heck? I mean, you're back on. Why did you open a jazz club and all this? Because I wanted to. I don't do things right. that I don't want to do. Hmm. Hmm. So, so tell that's a good segue into into the. I mean, man, it's such a great thing of life. It's a great philosophy, but you got to get there. You gotta work, be, but you, and you, you don't just get, get there because you make up your mind one day. I'm there. Can anybody do this? I mean, I, I actually I think I don't know. <laughs> I mean, realistically, when you talk about anybody, that's that's a okay. lot of people. But can most people do it? Yes, if they're prepared to pay the price. Now, sometimes it means that you're not driving the car you want to drive. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it means you're working a lot longer during the day than you want, and you're putting money away. But if you if you decide that that's your objective, you can get there. Let me. Well, this is very deep. Um, now, were you a Republican when you met Nelson? No. You were independent? Just I, I was just a guy. You <laughs> <laughs> So, so did did beating him then? Is it because he was Republican, or you, or, or, no, or you no, just no, no, you no. just like the principles, or I I like the opportunity. I like mm -hmm. the opportunity, and because um, by the way, I'm thinking about switching parties too. I like the opportunity, <laughs> and there aren't many of us left that call Rockefeller Republicans, but I liked his approach to public life, which was deep concern about people mm -hmm. and their well-being, and the uh, ability of government to impact their well-being, but. Fiscal responsibility, what we were just talked about. You just, yes. just, you know, the road to hell is stuff with good intentions or paved with good intentions. You got to know how you're going to pay for it and, and 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 exercise some discipline, or it, it isn't sustainable. And, and you said about five times discipline, mm -hmm. discipline, and understanding how this works. And and, and as I'm looking at the NFL, the NBA, and stuff like that. I don't know because you said all this stuff is out in front of you, and it almost is 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 counteracts against the very discipline you're talking about. Discipline in terms of being an athlete, but not discipline. Well, they know they know discipline in terms of being an athlete. Yeah. That's how you that's how you get to the top in anything. Yeah. But in finance, and you know, half my career has been in finance, people say to me, well, what advice, you know, if you had, what advice would you give the people? Save. Mm. Saving is a discipline. Mm. And saving is, and it, and it, and it anticipates that there's a future. Mm. 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 Did, so, so when you what 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 was it like? I, I hope this question doesn't come off. To, when you you go from being just a guy mm -hmm. to to suddenly being in a position where you're actually wealthy, at what point was that? I mean, when what was that, and how did that change your perspective on on what you can do in life? Because I think that you're talking about a lot of African Americans, in particular, not 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 you know the black diaspora is vast. You've mm -hmm. got people coming from all over. Sometimes I think that. African Americans have a particular challenge because we've been told so much about what you can't do, you can't do this. First, legally, you can't do this, you can't yeah. do this. And then just intellectually, can't do this, can't do this, can't be the CEO of Time Warner, you know, can't can't be at, at uh, uh, Citigroup, can't be there, can't. And so that's why I'm saying, can't be the President of the United States, heaven forbid. It seems to me, seriously, can't be uh, Dean back at the New York Times, can't be the executive editor, can't be, you know. And to me, whenever I see a brother, particularly, who's done what you've done and all this, man, you've done it 
eight times because it's not set up necessarily for that to happen. So I guess it's a long-winded way of getting asking you the same question about how do you get the vision, the discipline to put everything in a row to make these great things happen? You know, remember 10% what you know, 10% who you know, 80% luck. Um, and people resist that. They resist this notion of luck. But, like, I didn't choose my parents. You know? They get a lot of the credit for it. They get. I never, ever thought that there was something I couldn't be. Hmm. They didn't let me. I mean, I never, you know, I remember when I first left practice law and became chairman president of Dime Bank here in New York. Some reporter said to me, well, when did it first occur to you that you could be the chairman of a, you know, big bank? And my answer was, you know, it actually never occurred to me I couldn't. I mean, I, what did I know? So that's half the battle, just, just you know, showing up. Woody Allen was right, 80% of success is showing up. Just show up. Yeah, I, I, read, we, a, I read a quote from you, and you said, you know, I'm, I've never been that driven or never been that ambitious. I just work really hard. That kind of goes to what you're saying. Just do, yeah. you know, work hard at whatever's in front of you. Work hard, and to something that we we're talking about outside. I don't, you know, once I'm in the game, I don't have a particular ambition. I know I didn't set out to do any of this, but once you're in the game, then you play to win. Mm-hmm. You know, we we play to win. Right. So um, that that was a combination of being prepared to take a chance, and then if you get entry to the game play to win. But you also said something that's very important. This is a different country than it was 40 years ago, let's say. I I knew this. None of the Rockefellers knew this. I knew this. My grandfather on my mother's side, so his surname was Judd, was the head groundskeeper on the Rockefeller family estate back in the 40s, right? So there was a point in time when we came out of Washington. I moved on to the estate. Governor gave me a house and whatnot, so I was living Mm -hmm. on the estate. And I met some people who worked for my grandfather. Mm. And they told me these stories about this guy, you know. Uh, and it sounded very much like I wanted to be when I grew up. He was a natural leader. People liked him. He was fair. He was mm. intelligent. He was thoughtful. He could figure out all kind of problems, all that sort of stuff. But he was a groundskeeper. Mm. And then I thought about the difference of the you know, the arc of my life and career. And it's because, you know, if you, you can you can get in the game now. And this day, you couldn't get in the game. Now you can get in the game. Education's a big part of it, too. Well, that, but if you can get in the game, don't self-limit. That's what I tell groups that I talk to all the time. Don't don't go into something saying, well, they're not going to like me, right. or you know, they're not going to give me the same chance they give this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do that stuff. Yeah. Just go for it that, and play to win. And you know, it's funny, as you mentioned that, I remember, that as soon as you said I remember the interview I had with Eddie Robinson, this is yeah. back a number of years the ago. The Grambling coach? The Grambling yeah. coach, the famous Grambling coach. And we have this conversation in his office at Grambling. And remember, you know, I remember I was 18 years old. My first football game was right here at Yankee Stadium against Grambling, against Eddie Robinson. Mm-hmm. So here I am as this New York Times reporter asking, and we won that game, by the way, would you remind me? You know, but he, he's, he, he remember, he said, you know, I used to feel that, I used to look at him and say, well, Eddie, you're not going to get this because this guy's going to get this and this guy's going to get that, and this guy's going to get that. And to some extent, maybe it could be true, it couldn't be true, but it's until you make that mental switch or mental, however you call it, that I can do this. But that's, that. That's and I wrestle with, I mean, as old as I am, and I'm still thinking of it right now, there's, you know how many man, uh, ma- um, baseball managers are on, and in, in, uh, there's one black major league baseball manager, mm-hmm. one, in 2015. Now, I'm wondering, there doesn't seem to be any hue and cry about that. Now, I'm wondering, is that because we're post-racial? No, we're not or, post-racial. Or, or, uh, uh, but I'm wondering, because I was talking to my editor about this. I said, I said, Jay, there's only one African-American in 2015. Said, well, you know. And I'm thinking, what is what is it because, you know, there's been gay rights, we've got the, 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 the marriage, the uh, same-sex marriage. Are people in America just fatigued? Or are we just have we just kind of given up? Or well, a we're definitely not post-racial. I mean, nobody's even saying that now. Right. B fatigue. You you mentioned where Americans like to see, particularly Americans. They they are instant gratification freaks, right? Mm-hmm. So we went through all the wars of the '60s, 
and early 70s. And the world didn't change like overnight. <laughs> and people just got, they, they said, well, let's move on to something else that's easier. Uh, progress is being made. It's just at a pace that is still unacceptably slow. And some folks have to just, you know, stay in the road and and keep calling attention to those things. But I, I remember when I, when I first became a partner in a New York, big New York law firm, there weren't many. And I got a call from a guy named Conrad Harper who said, you know, we ought to, we ought to like, get together and have lunch, get to know each other, and, you know, start a little club of all the brothers who were making it to the partnership. I mm -hmm. said, well, I'm down with that. I said, well, how many of us are there? He said, well, we're talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you it's, know. It's still like that, I think. It's not, well, uh, there's probably 150 yeah. all right, all right. out of, right. what, 10,000 right. or something like right. that. But but that's progress. Right, right, you right. just got to keep making well, it. Well, see, that's the thing. And it, it, it reminded me that you have to keep grinding. And I yeah, think sometimes, yeah, particularly with right-minded people in the country, and particularly African-Americans, or wh whatever group you're in, I think there's a tendency that you get to a thing, well, we had eight black managers, or we got this, and then you sort of say, cool. Then the next thing you know, you look around and say, you're back down to one. And you have to keep, somebody's got to commit to keep struggle. But but I, I think of all the so-called minority groups, African-Americans self-limit the most. Part of it's our 400-year heritage in this country. Mm -hmm. But there's still, you know, I remember when, you know, my grandmother always used to tell me whenever we'd come and visit, she boy, I want you to be a credit to your race. Now, right. who else says that, right? You <laughs> right. ever hear an Irish right. person say that? Or you, right. I want you to be a credit to your race? No. Um, it, it, it's that, that mentality of, you know, you got to be twice as good and to get half as far. You gotta be Do you think that's bad? I don't think it's bad. Well, the half as far part might be bad. I think I think what it does though it sets a mindset in people that somehow I'm not going to get a fair shake out there, right? And that then causes people not to try. Mm. You got to show up. You got to mm. show up. Mm. But I mean, if you look at Joe Lewis. I mean, I don't want to get that straight, but but Joe Lewis. That I mean, you know, Joe Lewis was important to people. Yeah, he was. Uh, Jackie Robinson was important. Mm -hmm. Muhammad Ali was important. You were important. When you became, trust me, and you, and you know this, when you became CEO, it was Time Warner, a lot of people, me included, I said, man, you know, I'm, I'm proud of you. Now, you said, now, you said, what the heck? <laughs> I cleaned that up for your audience. But the, well, the, the, the thing <laughs> about podcasts, you can curse. But but what I'm saying is that it was significant. And it can, to me, I think it, it continues to be significant. I don't know, is there a downside to No, to, but, but we, it just, we need more role models. And we need more parents doing what my parents did, which was creating high expectations. I, I remember I gave a talk to the Urban League once with NAA one, they were at a conference down in uh, Atlanta, and, and someone said to me, well, if you had to say one word that accounts for your success, what would it be? I said, the same word that I'd say for all y'all who are sitting out here, because we're all successful in this room, expectations. Right. Expectations, you know. If I came home acting a fool, whew, right, which I did a lot, and whew, that's why I know. <laughs> you know, did you get spanked? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm with Charles Barkley on that. <laughs> you know, if they if they put everybody in jail for spanking their kids, half of America, eighty percent of black people would be in jail. Did I get spanked? Um, but my parents had expectations, yeah. and they and they they didn't take excuses, and they built little worries. You know, you go out there, you make it happen. Right. Don't be saying that they're not going to give me a fair shake. Go get yours. Right. 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 Um, let's talk about two kind of final things before we okay. segue. A, uh, my favorite restaurant, uh, which, is, which is the Cecil. Uh, and uh, again, how did you? Uh, you know, Harlem is Harlem is changing. I was talking to a guy from ESPN uh, the other day, yesterday, and they were saying, "Oh, we're going to have a, a website. We're going to have a little feature called 125th Street, mm -hmm. and it's supposed to sing that as a man. 125th Street has changed." But tell me about about the restaurant and and and, uh, and why and uh, you know. Okay, so it started. I owe a lot to Charlie Wrangle on this. Uh, because he and a guy named Jack Kemp sort of sponsored this empowerment zone legislation in the mid-90s, and so Harlem was one. And I was, it was a public-private partnership, city, state, federal government, and then private sector, focusing money on some of the economically blighted inner cities. So 
So we had one in Harlem. I was the first chairman. We did the whole strategic plan for the revitalization of Harlem. And I got hooked on that community. You had to learn about it. Harlem used to be, Harlem was the bomb, man. Mm. The old expression when I was a kid and you would, had a tie and a jacket on and people said, you say, you look like you're going uptown. Uh, right, well, that's, that's how right. people used to dress to go to Harlem. Right. It was the entertainment capital of the world. Mm. Um, and so, you know, bringing life, economic life, back to the Harlem community. It's as big as Atlanta. They didn't have a, they didn't have a movie theater. They didn't have a, a grocery store. They didn't have anything. Um, was the game plan. And Harlem is in a renaissance now, and I'm also, as you pointed out, and as you, you are yourself, I'm a jazz lover from way back. And, you know, Minton's, Minton's, Minton's is holy ground mm. for people who are, you know, steeped in jazz. Minton's was where bebop was born and where the foundations of modern jazz were laid down. And Minton's has basically been closed since 1974. Yeah. I mean, a couple of guys tried to reopen it, but it didn't work. So um, the notion of reopening Minton's and making it and, and being part of the Renaissance was something that I thought when I have the time I'd want to do. And then next door, where the Cecil is, was the lobby of the old Cecil Hotel. Again, closed since 1974. And, you know, I wanted not just to have a sort of high-end, nice, elegant supper club, but a place for the community. For, among other reasons, to give people jobs. Why right. should you have to leave your neighborhood to get a job? So we put the two of them together. We opened up a couple of years ago, and it's been uh, highly critically acclaimed and well accepted. And one day, they even make money. <laughs> <laughs> the mac and cheese is tremendous. The mac and cheese is fabulous. <laughs> the mac and cheese is almost yeah. The mac and cheese, the gumbo. You know, you got yeah. to roll up there to check it out. No, you got it. When you're in the city, in fact, in fact, uh, what you said to road. Well, we'll talk about those. To people who come in and mention your name. Oh. <laughs> we'll think. We'll talk about this. We're, 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 He's trying we're, to make some money, man. Huh? <laughs> trying to make some money. Okay, but uh, but also so so the the, the Cecil, there's mentions uh, the winery, yeah. uh, the winery that I mispronounced. I mean, I, I just Il murdered. Okay, Il now let's switch over to 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 to, to Brian because actually Brian, actually as long as I've known you, Brian reached out and uh, and you guys connected and graciously as a result of you being here. So thank you very much. Uh, Brian, but don't get the big head, man. But thank you very you much. You mean bigger? I, <laughs> I might be able to fit out the door. We'll see. So, 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 as we segue out, I told Brian, you know, we we give our guests a bottle of wine, and I, I said, well, Brian, what bottle of wine could you possibly give to someone who's got a vineyard? Tell me about the vineyard, why you started it, and how that's been going. Okay. We, we, I didn't start it. it was a, it was an existing, you know, ongoing operation. I bought it in two thousand. My wife and I did. She now owns it. Because you know how wives are. They, they, they're acquisitive. Uh, <laughs> okay. But also... Yeah, right, right. So there's, I, there's no way to just get this, this, this story can end well. So yeah. let's just... It's all right so far. <laughs> uh, we had to do that because you, in New York, you can't own a restaurant and a vineyard together. So Why is that? Old That goes back to right after Prohibition. Yeah. But I own the restaurant. She owns the vineyard. Okay. But I still manage it because... I do that well. It's a hobby. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't... You, uh, the other thing, once you've achieved a certain level of success, I did not want to be one of those guys that had to be carried off the field, mm -hmm. you know, because I couldn't play anymore. So you have to be thinking all the time about, well, what's the next turn of the card? What, what, mm -hmm. What's my next life? And I decided to go into something that was very different than what I was doing, but get some stuff and see if you liked it. And I like wine, and... You know, it's farming is what it is. So mm. it's, it's, it's like, my kids used to ask me all the time, well, what do you do, Dad? And I would be like, uh, I have meetings. I, you know, we, 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 what do executives do? Now, here, you make wine. You get in, put your hands in the dirt. Pick you're a grapes. farmer. Yeah, you're a farmer. Huh. And I enjoy it, and Italy's a lovely place. I don't know how Brian found it, though. I have to give credit to one of the chaps I work with at Ackermarrow Tell, Martin mm -hmm. uh, he introduced me to the wine. We all fell in love with it. And once I met Bill, we thought it would be the perfect to get you in here and talk to you about it. But I love the fact that you're, you're hands-on. I like that you, you decide the, the wood aging, and yeah. you, also take, you also do the blending, which is yep. amazing. I mean, I mean, yeah, it was, it was fun. I mean, who knew, right? But I have a winemaker. Did wine you just start blending it? Or I had, or no, I have a winemaker, and I sit yeah. with him and the blend, and he would do something, and he'd say, taste this, taste that, and I'd mix it up. And then he said, you know, you want to – I'll offer you a job. I – Turns out I have a decent palate. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I know what I like. And 
again, it goes back to that conversation we had earlier. I make what I like, you know. Uh, we, we actually the conversation we had it would almost be embarrassing. We had a conversation <laughs> out there about about uh, Mad Dog Twenty Twenty and uh, and Wild Thunderbird. Uh, Thunderbird was oh by the way okay this is inside so um uh so Dick uh what's the word Thunderbird what's the price in New York fifty twice in Chicago thirty twice that tells you something about New York and Chicago folks I see it people does. people I'm sure there's a group of people who don't know what the exactly hell we just said a large group. A lot, a lot of <laughs> but that's that was the thing. You say somebody say, "Hey, what's the what's 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 the word?" Thunderbird. What's the price? Fifty twice. And yeah. Thunderbird was a wine. Yeah. Right? Thunderbird was a cheap, cheap <laughs> wine. Cheap wine. A buck a bottle. <laughs> so anyway, but uh, we we I don't from, know how we, that got we, into we, this we part from, of the conversation. We went from Italy, Italy to the south. <laughs> uh, but now, Brian, did you? Is there some? This wine uh, is not a dollar a bottle, Bill. Huh? This wine is not a dollar a bottle. That you're about to present? No, that. That Dick produces. Oh, really? What, what's the so um, the question that, that that Bill asked was, you know, what are you going to give Dick Parsons? I mean, you can't, you know, anybody. I said anybody can give him a five hundred dollar bottle of this or something right. from uh, Chablis. Or well, so I went with this, Amapola Creek. It's an organic. Uh, it's from Sonoma, not from mm-hmm. Napa. It's a cab. It's big. Um, I want you to try it and see what you think of it. I will, and I'll let you know. Yeah, I actually, again, Italy is the largest wine producing country in the world. I mean, it's just it's part of a three thousand year old tradition, bigger than France, bigger than the United States, and and I love Italy. I love Brunellos, and you basically only make Brunello and Montalcino. But probably the best wine making region in the world in terms of all of the elements: sun, soil, wind, rain, California. Hmm. California wine region. Yeah. And there's, the laws are a lot different in California than they are in Italy. Italy, it's pretty, you have to do yeah, it a certain sure. way by the government. California is, is almost like the Wild West. Ah. Uh, now, last thing, this wine was, what would you say, the, the wine that we just drank at the very beginning of the show? Well, um, if, if, if you like Brunello, Brunello is a, it's a very, I, I think it's the highest end expression of Italian red wine. It was the first DOC, the first sort of state recognized and sanctioned uh, uh, Appalachian, and it's it's highly formulaic in terms of the way you make it. But so you're really dependent on weather conditions, which means from vintage to vintage, because you you, know, you never have identical weather from one year to the next. Uh, you get a you get a different wine. It, it has it has that Brunello taste, that sort of deep elegance, lots of lots of good tannins, etc. But they're different. And 2010 was to me the best vintage the last 30 years. I mean, it's just a fabulous wine. Smooth, um, flavorful, um, and, and because it's, it's vinified for so long, you can't even bring it to market for five years, uh, it, has, it has staying power. This wine will just get better for the next 10, 15 years. Unfortunately, I just drank it all. Uh, what, what's, what's your favorite? What's we, your, can, we can hook you up. <laughs> we can hook a brother up. <laughs> I hope I don't mean to we'll beg, beg, on, beg on, on air. On <laughs> air, but uh, what, what did David Ruffin say? A2 Listen, man, uh, this, is, this is really big. Oh, before I let you go, what is your favorite wine at the restaurant? At, at, at the Cecil? Well, we serve this wine. And so, so this, this, is, this, is, this is my favorite wine. Um, I do like a good cab. I do like a good cab. I'm a red wine drinker. Uh, you said it's healthy. I mean, that, not that you said, but it is healthy. Say. It is healthy. People are, and they just get into wine around the world now. But uh, red wine, in particular, has something called resveratrol in it, and that has been shown clinically to extend life, which is what we're all about, you know. So <laughs> I guess a little something, something. Are you are you a, a uh, are you a Clippers fan now? I mean, I am. I, mean, I am, and I'm I'm a huge Doc fan. Um, Doc's good. He, guy. I was going to say, if there's another hero to the piece. It'd be Doc. Doc became first of all, he's a grown up, right? Right. He's a grown up. He's a very <laughs> right. he knows he knows his craft, but he's also a grown up. He didn't get very emotional. He was a stabilizing force, which there were too few of out there when I got there. Uh, and he's a leader. Mm-hmm. And he's Doc became something of a local celebrity. You know, you go out to have dinner with Doc, and people would come take pictures with him. <laughs> um, so. Uh, and I'm 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 a CP fan. I think Andre. I'm glad that got all squared away because he is a monster. I mean, you know, he got to get his head right, but on that foul line. But he's such a talent, and they have a core. 
that they need now, and they need some more role players to build around. But uh, the Clippers, I think, will, they have a shot. They have a shot at becoming sort of like America's team in the way, remember how Dallas became America's team in the 90s? They still are. Okay, <laughs> we're, not, we're not going down that road. Did you have a problem with DeAndre did in terms of making up his going and then saying he's not going and coming back? No, I don't have a problem with it because he made the right decision in the end. Well, that, and that's, that's so, so what's the bottom line? I, I, yeah, he made the right decision in the end. I mean, you know, lots of times, you know, talk about you know, thinking out loud. If we all did that, people would see. People do that all the time. Well, I'm going to do this, and then they come to their senses. I think, I think Doc is is really good for DeAndre. I think um, the L.A. community loves him. I think he's an important, integral part of that team. I said he's a monster talent, and he ended up making the right call. Hey, Richard D. Parsons, this has been wonderful, man. I, I hope that you uh, come back. This has been this has been spectacular. We could do another hour. Maybe we will do another hour, and we'll have two bottles of wine. But thank you so much, man. This has been this has been very, David very Ruffin, special. David Ruffin be impressed with your game here. <laughs> <laughs> the great David Ruffin. That's another. That's you know a, that's what? Another, that's half another, the people, that's that's a, half the people, they say, who? Oh man, what? David, David. There's some people. There's timers, right? David Ruffin and Richard D. Parsons. Timers. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. This is fun. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.